Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. This is the triumphant return of the Overthinking It book club, and we are reading Slaughterhouse-Five. This is the first installment of our six-part series, and we'll be discussing chapters one and two. I'm Ben Adams, and with me is a a whole panel of overthinkers, each of whom is firmly stuck in time. So we'll we'll run down the list and... uh, We'll get started. So first, we have the the world's foremost expert on Slaughterhouse-Five, Shana Miloski. Hey, Shana. Hey, and as an expert, I want to say that this podcast is going to begin with the word welcome, and it's probably going to end with the word deserve, maybe. I don't want to, you know, look to the future. Sorry. Yes, but I am the foremost expert on (laughs) this book. And, and so. Shana gets pride of place based on both her last name and the fact that she did the work of deciding what the best way to divide the book up was. So that's why Wait, she's the foremost expert. I'm the first last name? I mean, you other are. than it's you, of course, shocking. Ben. This has never happened before. Okay. I'm just going to sit here and be happy about that. M- moving on. M- moving on past the M's and into the P's, we have John Parrish. What up? What up? Pootie-weet! And along with Parrish, we have Richard Rosenbaum. Hello. Hey, Richard. How's it going? Pretty good. How are you? I'm doing great here. And <laughs> next to him, we have Jordan Stokes. I think that we're all going to have our own way that we phonetically pronounce Putuit, Putuit, which is really interesting to, to hear someone else not instinctively thinking that it was what I thought it was. Putuit. And finally, Matt Rather, how do you pronounce Putuit? It's the the children's podcast. (laughs) Or A Dance with Death. (laughs) Uh, I would have said Putiwit, I guess, if you you, uh, made me me do it. In the Canadian version that I've got, it says Poutine Wheat. (laughs) (laughs) Ah. Sounds delicious. That's French for chili fries, right? It's French for disco fries, yeah. <laughs> so I guess I'll say for last year, for the Overthinking It Ender's Game podcast, at this point we'd usually do a little bit of plot summary of what had happened in the chapters so far, which seems completely beside the point for Slaughterhouse-Five. So we'll just launch right in. Guys, what do you think? Well, I want to know, um, since I've read this before, being the expert, um, who here is reading it for the first time, or this is the first time that you are experiencing it, but you might experience it again um, if there's some sort of unstuckness that's going to happen in the future. I'm saying who's read this before? (laughs) Yeah, so I'll give it my context. I read this, I want to say my sophomore year of high school, and wrote one of the first serious uh, research papers that I'd ever written on the book. So one of the ones where I first had to cite, you know, footnotes and, you know, official literary sources and such. And Me too. I know. Like it was pretty great. And then, so I read this sophomore year in high school and then have not touched it, I believe, since. So this was, this would be God, at least 16 years ago, if not more. So... I'm sort of recalling things as I find it, but I am sort of coming to it as if it's something I'd experienced in the past that had yet to happen in the future. So I'm sort of unstuck in time. Maybe I just hit my head in a plane crash. One of the funniest things that happened uh, on the the planning email thread for this was that Shana uh, emailed all of us and said, ooh, I can get out my uh, high school paper on, on the novel. Did you guys know there's Jesus imagery in it? Because there is. There is. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, actually, I was looking for it this time around because I wanted to be like, was I an idiot back then? Um, and at the beginning of the book, there really isn't much of it, but it, it comes later on. Spoilers. Oh, good. So um, we have that to look forward to. <laughs> I mean, not much. I... I tend to make things up as I read, as you will find out later in this podcast. Like the narrator of what? Um, I, I've never read it before. I've actually never read any Vonnegut before. So this is my first, uh, my first experience with each. I skipped, because I went to a weird hippy-dippy high school, I skipped all the, uh, the normal high school books. Uh, yeah, I haven't uh, read it before. I'm with you, rather. <laughs> I think I was... Um, I think I was avoiding it deliberately because 
I'm just that kind of person where if everybody else is reading a book in high school, uh, I'm like, well, yeah, that if you guys like it so much, it's probably not worth my time. What is Rebel. it about the overthinking at book club and war? You know, uh, but- and sci-fi wars, and in fact, <laughs> and children and crusades, right. which could be a subtitle for Ender's Game, I think. If the Crusades were against bug aliens, which I don't know. I didn't live back then. Maybe they were. Anyway, (laughs) Stokes, have you read this before? (laughs) No, uh, this is my first time reading this and reading any Vonnegut whatsoever. Um, And I'll say this. I bet bet that I'm the least prepared because if I know Matt Rather like I think I know Matt Rather, he probably read more than the two chapters that were required for tonight, but I I did not. I didn't. No, I, I absolutely didn't. I My discipline was so bad with the Ender's Game podcast where I read Ender's Game more or less in a night because I got so drawn into it that I um, I have not. Uh, in fact, I've barely finished the two chapters uh, in time for this in time for this recording. I was going so down to the wire. And I find that it's I, I find reading it if if I may kind of just jump into the jump into reading. I mean, I find that there's so much. Uh, in the like the fragmented narrative and the jumps through time and stuff like that, there's so much that sort of works against that that sense of like sucking you in with like uh, uh, with you know being a, being a page turner, uh, being like a, a suspenseful or sort of thrilling thrilling novel. And I mean, I guess that that's like um, that's what the the uh, uh, the point is right. Like in the conversation with Mary, where she says, you're going to make it all sound like John Wayne was in the war and it was all awesome. And, uh, and something like, and stuff like that. Uh, he says, no, 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 I won't. And, and it seems like one of the ways, the, one of the ways it's made less awesome, you know, and one of the ways the experience of reading it is made less triumphal is, th- I mean, there are a lot of ways, but one of them is through this kind of fragmentary structure, right? Yeah, I mean, it's supposed to be alienating for sure. And this isn't really much of a spoiler, Matt, but you've actually kind of read the whole book already in that in the second chapter, um, the first few pages of it, basically an outline of the entire book. So, I mean, I think as it goes along, it becomes faster. Um, A lot of the chapters get shorter as well, and things um, get repeated in... I, I would say a funny way. Um, it's like uh, the Simpsons stepping on a rake joke. Like the first time you read a line, it's kind of funny. And the second time, maybe a little less funny. And then it gets unfunny for a while. But then um, the seventh or eighth or ninth time, hilarious. So I think uh, it is alienating, but also in a joke sort of way. Um, like that how do you put it? I don't know. I think humor comes from a little bit of an alienating place. Like it's jarring your brain in a sense. So you are like above it all that you're laughing at it. So you can't really, uh, you know, when you're listening to a joke, you don't feel empathy for the characters and the joke. Like, Oh, I lived through that. I'm so sad for them. Um, you're, you're a bit separate. And I think that slaughterhouse five is sort of meant to be kind of a, a joke. Like at the beginning, um, uh, Vonnegut uh, has a limerick. So this book is sort of supposed to be a limerick in a way, or a funny song that goes around in circles. So yes, I agree with you. Ben, you were saying something. <laughs> well, I was just going to say that for our, for our readers that are high school students looking to skip out on actually reading the book, apparently you can just read the first couple pages of chapter two <laughs> and get an outline for the rest of the book. So that's a, a t- good time-saving tip from the the overthinking at book club. This is important. I'm Although I, I will say, I will say that any any high school teachers who are listening to this podcast and who want to teach Slaughterhouse Five and devote any significant portion of the test on it to that sort of like reading, you know, that reading memorization, like oh, we're going to quiz them on things that happen in the book to prove that they read it. You're teaching the book wrong. Like if you're <laughs> if you're teaching of the mastery of Slaughterhouse Five is do they remember events in the sequence in which they happen? You you've taught the book wrong. You're not a good teacher. I mean, there are boobies in this book, so all a teacher really has to do is say, if you get to the end, there are boobies. 
Um, and even in, uh, not to spoil too much, but like there's even a picture of boobies. So, I mean, you just say that and they will read it. It's a short book. Uh, like I was saying, really we're emailing each other. It's like half the length of a young adult novel uh, written these days. So if I think if there are... Um, I want to say kids, but like people our age who were kids um, when uh, reading this book, when they were in high school, there were people I knew who never read any of the books assigned in English class. But if they were to read just one of them, it was probably this one just because it was so skinny. Is there I sort of wonder if there's a female uh, equivalent of boobies, like a thing to get excited about, though. I don't know. I suppose all the girls in high school reading the book might just as well be excited by the boobies. But like, what is there, you know, what is there that you could promise? Like, if you just get to the end of the book, there's X and, and it makes it all worthwhile. Well, um, not to talk too much about this because I don't think it's a major point of the book, but I think this is sort of a, a male sort of book from a very male perspective, um, and I, I enjoy it a lot. Um, but I don't know that there's much that you could say to uh, a young woman who is not interested in the beginning of the book that something really great is going to happen that they will like, like sexy vampires making out with a uh, you know, regular girl who realizes she has some sort of supernatural power. There's nothing like that. So, uh, I mean, when I read it in high school, I really liked it. Um, I started it at the beginning. I wanted to read the rest. So um, yeah, I don't I know if I was a normal general, girl. Like all-purpose, an all-purpose thing like... Uh, like, you know, girls, if you get to the end of this book, Benedict Cumberbatch is at the end or something like that. <laughs> There's a bird and <laughs> girls like animals. Ponies. There's a pony. There is a pony and deedly balls, which I, is just a <laughs> word yep. that I like to say. Deedly. Anyway. <laughs> that, that's a, that's a very, that's a very middle American description. It's a very middle American, like Ohio slash upstate New York slash Pennsylvania which are all air, Iowa, which I guess is, is farther west. But, you know, the, those are all, all regions of the country with which you associate Kurt Vonnegut. You don't I, – I, I have a hard time pegging him in, you know, the sort of New York publishing scene or, or even on Cape Cod, which apparently he was living on when he started writing this book. Yeah, he, he has this sort of uh, – I don't want to say folksiness um, because he's a bit – too dark for that, I think, or a bit too hysterical for that. But yeah, definitely not uh, the city folk uh, that you think of when you think of high literature, as it were. Well, it's it's a it's a labor it's a labor folksiness. It's the folksiness that emerges from blue collar level interests, right. which is you know in the I suppose in the in the stereotype, you know, the put in forty hours a week at the at the dying, you know, American industrial center and then drink until you have to go home. Well it's it's interesting you raise Ohio, because one of the first things that stood out to me because because of my Ohio roots here was the the first kind of metaphor he makes is he compares Dresden uh, in nineteen sixty seven to Dayton, Ohio. Uh, which I feel like is a reference that a would not be the first thing that comes to mind for a New York or California writer. Like there'd be some other town that they would compare it to. Um, and I love that the, apparently the only difference between Dresden and Dayton is the human bone meal in the ground, which like right away just establishes uh, kind of the perspective he's coming from here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I don't know if we want to sort of, delve i guess we do want to delve deep we want to overthink it right i feel like the answer to that question is always yes (laughs) always i mean i was just thinking of what i was saying last night on the podcast about snowpiercer and maybe not making a lot of sense but now i have a chance to say it again but more slowly and thoughtfully on this podcast um which is that like snowpiercer um the a beginning of Slaughterhouse Five um, puts us in this like sort of meta literary space um, where you know uh, the story begins with him uh, Vonnegut telling us that this is a story, it's a book, and he says it's true more or less, right? Um, and the question I think uh, Ben, you raised it uh, um, in the emails that we were sending back and forth is why does he start this way? Why uh, doesn't he just like put us right in the book into Billy Pilgrim's mind? Why does he have this whole 
whole chapter of uh, talking about how he came to write the book. And I think um, the... Well, I didn't think this in high school, but this time around reading it, um, since I write things now, I was thinking a lot about um, how this book is about the act of writing and whether it is valuable at all, um, where he talks to this movie producer about writing an anti-war book, and the producer says, uh, you might as well write an anti-glacier book because it doesn't change anything, right? So it was like, why is he writing this in the first place? Um, which is a question that I think we're going to return to as we uh, you know, continue reading the book. Um, but I think also that the book itself is sort of used as, an, and when I say the book, I mean the idea of a book is used as a metaphor in here. Um, because he always has these dualities in the first two chapters between time moving forward and time standing still. And a book is like a static object, right? Like, it is written. He says, this book is over. I have written it. I'm not going back to it. I'm not writing about war in the future. So it's done. It's this object that we have. Or in my case, I have a Kindle. So I have this Kindle object that I have. But on the other hand, as we continue reading it chapter by chapter, um, you know, we... Um, add our own reading to it. We change it. Time does progress forward. And I just think that it's sort of like the train in Snowpiercer, right? Uh, so that is what I was trying to say last night on the podcast, but now I'm saying it on a different podcast. And that's what we, that just happens to be a film that, that uh, came out in the States this week. In case you are listening to this uh, book club podcast years and years in the future, or unless, in case you're unstuck in time and are listening to it years and years in the past and wondering what these newfangled motion picture contraptions are, or indeed what podcasts uh, <laughs> podcasts So one, one of the few things I remember about the, the, the aforementioned research paper that I wrote God, 17 years ago on this book, was uh, Joyce Carol Oates' commentary on this, her, her contemporaneous review of the book, in which she describes it as sort of being a, not a healing process, but a sort of exploratory process for Vonnegut to revisit the firebombing of Dresden, which chapters one and two intimate is going to be a fairly important part of the story. And so... And the way Vonnegut describes it, and I think this is clear in the first two chapters, like it's it's too much for him to grapple with head on. Like he can't he can't write an article for the New Yorker that says this is what it was like being in Dresden when it was firebombed. So he has to invent this fictional character of Billy Pilgrim from this fictional town of Ilium, New York. Ilium, of course, being the the other name for Troy, a another legendarily beautiful, legendarily destroyed city, uh, and then. It's like, all right, I can tell a story about Billy Pilgrim, but it's like, no, that's not really going to work either. I have to wrap that novel in another layer of apologia, commentary, remove. So it's like it's like he has this and this isn't this isn't Oates's metaphor. This is mine. He has this this, you know, really powerful chemical or explosive and he wraps it in a package and then he wraps it in another package. And only then is he capable of setting it down, being like, all right, here. Now I'm now I can approach it because I've removed myself from it three or four or five times. It's also I mean, it's that it's it's powerful, explosive material, um, not to push the metaphor too far. But it's it's also to do, I think, with the nature of memory. Right. And remembering as an act that sort of wraps uh, you know, that, that wraps, uh, the actual experience. And then the more you remember, the, the more you wrap, um, and, and sort of, uh, memories on memories on memories and sort of moments on moments. And, and the, the idea, I mean, I'm struck by something Shana said about writing, you know, this book is done, it's an object, but then also like it's, it's done from the point of view, from the point of view of the reader. So taking it, I mean, taking it, uh, one level of abstraction further, we're reading, uh, which is a kind of wrapping experience. Uh, all the levels of narrative are wrapping experiences. And, and these have to do with like psychological defenses because of the trauma at the center of the experience, but also, uh, also something with the nature of memory. You know, I wonder, um, 
I have to say that so far I'm not really liking the book a heck of a lot. And when I, when I was preparing for this podcast, I was trying to wrap my mind exactly around why. Because um, I figured that would be basically what I have to to contribute, um, and I think it has to do with this this phenomenon that you're describing, both um, as a response to trauma and in the way that uh, that Shana was saying that the book is kind of a joke, right? And you have to have that uh, superior remove in order to joke about things effectively. Um, and I think that like what what bothered me is that I don't feel like anyone in the world of Billy Pilgrim, at least so far, like has um, meaningful psychological reality. Like, I, I don't believe that uh, that the characters actually feel things, which, of course, is, you know, I mean, in a way, it's silly, right? Because they're, they're fictional characters. They can't feel things. But then in 90% of the entertainments that we consume, we do sort of feel that the people are meaningful psychological creatures and that like when they're when they're crying they're really sad when they're happy they're really happy and i just i didn't really feel that here um and i wonder if maybe that's kind of a um a danger to the approach that he's taking especially if you want to deal with a with a tragedy is that by um refusing to sort of make it a realist text you're going to end up uh, draining all of the all of the pathos out of it, and I'm not sure, uh, at least at this point, that draining the pathos out of Dresden is is the best way to confront what actually happened you're in Dresden. It's impossible to write an anti-war postmodern novel. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean it's it's possible, but I'm I'm not sure that I'm going to to care to read it. You know? <laughs> yeah, I felt I felt uh, very much the same way. Like the the narrative voice itself is really emotionally distant. And while that's obviously deliberate, and he goes, he goes on a little bit about how the aliens you know, don't really care about the difference between a dead person or a live person, um, and that's kind of part of what he seems to be going for, it also, I think, undermines the idea of making the events that it's talking about, something the reader is going to care about. Right. Because they're fine because they're final, right? They have, they have lasting consequences when, when the dead people are dead and not, you know, in some sort of more evolved perspective on time, sort of always alive and always dead at every moment, eternally, uh, never and always forever. Right. Um, but I, I wonder about the relationship to this because we see, we seem to like identify a certain amount of folksiness and like middle American charm in in the narrator and I have a couple of reactions to that one is that like that has that has the that has um uh, uh, one of the ways that it's it's affected is the sort of is the way that there isn't like an affectation of superiority in the narrator's attitude and I associate that with like. Uh, literary fiction, you know, with this, like, uh, a high degree of irony and a sense of, of, uh, ironic distance, uh, as being, as being sort of above it all. Um, the, the narrator's detachment is, I, I mean, I think the horror of the narrator's detachment is, is brought home in the story of the guy whose ring gets caught in the, the wrought iron uh, elevator door and gets, you know, smashed by the smashed by the elevator. Um, and the, the reporter who's like, uh, who is supposed to be this sort of tough as nails broad, who is sort of Mildred Pierce, like in that she like takes jobs when, when all the men are away at the war and becomes this sort of, uh, newspaper reporter is like, well, was it, was it awful? And, um, the narrator's like, no, I saw worse than that. I saw a lot worse than that in the war. I wasn't, I wasn't sort of affected by it. Right. So that, so that I think that the, the, like the not being affected, um, is, is not a, a case of of not caring uh, or of failing to care. It's it's a case of having having cared so much and gotten the care sort of sort of beat out of you. I also associate it with a kind of like greatest generation emotional reserve, right? That is that is sort of much ballyhooed by cultural commentators today. Uh, in in um, stark contrast to the millennial tendency towards, you know, self-indulgence and, and, uh, feeling their feelings all over the place. I think, um, 
there's something to be said for this uh, tension between Vonnegut being like this folksy guy that we could meet in Ohio versus this sort of, uh, I don't know, literary god who is above it all and being satirical. Because I'm thinking um, very famously at the end of the first chapter, he says, um, the book is going to begin like this and the book is going to end like that. So obviously it uh, is part of the whole fatalism of the novel, but also um, reminding us that Vonnegut um, had already created this book. So he's like, um, he, he's saying, I am the God, I am omnipotent. But right before that, he tells the story of Lot and Lot's, Lot's wife. And um, he points out that what he loves about that story is the humanity of it. So, um, you have this dichotomy in these two pages. On one page, him saying, like, I care about humans, and I care about this one individual human who dared to look back and was sad about it. And on the other hand, him being like, I am the eye of God, and I'm going to tell you how this book begins and ends. Um, so I think throughout the book, it's really going back and forth between those two poles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else? <laughs> well, I'm curious. I mean, for those of you who have read it before, um, does do you, do the characters become more human as they go on? Because because right now they feel very um, allegorical. Or no, um, I, I like I've been trying. I've been like uh, biting my tongue, trying not to spoil things. But it's not really a spoilable book in a way. Um, like I don't think the characters have very much depth, and as you said, it's by design. Um, but that said, maybe you'll have a different experience than I did. Um, I think, much like the Simpsons rake joke gets funnier the more you tell it, I think it also gets, in this book, gets sadder the more you tell it. Like, the first time you read So It Goes, you're like, oh, that's interesting. And then later on, you're like, okay, you're saying So It Goes a lot. And there comes a point where there are just so many so's it go so so it goes that it becomes like oppressive and you're like okay i i feel the weight of this now or i'm saying you but i mean me right so maybe you won't feel that way but i i did is like okay. chapter 20 just one so it goes for every person who perished in the bombing of dresden <laughs> uh no but that would be amazing <laughs> so i mean i ha- i obviously haven't I also have not read ahead, but so I'll kind of answer my own. I think the only character with a lot of depth so far is the narrator. And so that chapter one kind of serves the purpose of instead of just having an omniscient narrator and kind of taking it for granted, like you do with a more conventional novel, you very much have the narrator of the story as a character in the story. And so even though the, the nominal characters the the people walking around in the story don't have a lot of depth, you, you get a lot of depth out of how the narrator perceives them and how we how we get those descriptions of of the different characters, which well, I think also, is imp- oh, sorry. Go on. I think that's important only because for me this book the what's kind of interesting about the first part of this book is how he describes so much of the process of writing the book. So much of the first chapter is about how he got from being in Dresden to writing this book. He talks about how it's the product of thousands of pages and false starts and complicated diagrams on the backs of wallpaper. And that's not something you normally see. Normally, you just have the piece, the the text without an accompanying little thing with author talks about how they did it. You know, the making of DVD is not normally part of the feature presentation at the theaters. Um, so I think that serves an interesting purpose of showing that this is a, a product of a narrator and a product of a particular author. Yeah, and well, that also, is interesting. <laughs> and also, I think um, just to get back to the point of, of writing as well, like throughout this book, uh, the the saying goes that you should show, don't tell. In writing, this book is almost entirely telling, not showing, which really puts the narrator front and center, as you said, Ben. Like he is the character, and um, later on, there are going to be moments where you're like, oh. Any other author would have shown that part, but he, you know, he is telling it. He is giving us his own perspective from the future at this very far remove. So, yes, I agree with you completely. Well, I, I think there's a little bit of showing in here, a little bit of, I guess, more artful 
story crafting. And this gives me an opportunity to segue into the next thing I, I guess I want to discuss, which was the other characters besides Billy Pilgrim, whom we're sort of introduced to in Chapter 2, namely Roland Weary, his, uh, his fellow soldier who has sort of a fetish for torture and weaponry, and the two, I believe, nameless scouts whose only real line of dialogue is to abandon the two of them and, uh, and head, off into the, head off into the woods. So, I mean, let's, let's talk about these people as characters. I, I, I feel like, contra, contra some of what you said earlier, Ben, I feel like at least the, the scouts, and to an extent weary, have something of a personality to them. Like, they're... They're envisionable characters. Billy Pilgrim is is something of a cipher. Uh, he doesn't. I mean, things happen to him, and he does things, but it's it's not really clear why, and it's not really clear what he gets out of them. Like, there's that whole vignette when he comes unstuck in time of him, you know, trying to cheat on his wife with a woman at a cocktail party, and then getting thrown out in a drunken heap, and ending up in the backseat of his car and passing out. And, you know, you don't really get the sense that he's guilty about it or lascivious or proud or ashamed or really much of anything. It's just a thing that he does. Whereas Roland and the scouts, you can you can get a sense of motivations behind what they do or at least a sense of what drives them, what they want. See, I would... I'll note one thing that's interesting about the scouts. I noticed in the uh, the first chapter, I didn't notice, I read these chapters two times through, and I noticed the second time around that Vonnegut and O'Hare were apparently infantry scouts during the war. And so I was wondering ah. if those are somehow, or sorry, not Vonnegut, the narrator. I don't know if Vonnegut actually was, but the narrator and O'Hare were apparently infantry scouts. So I'm wondering if that's kind of writing himself into the story and then having himself and his friend get away instead of getting captured this time around. Huh. I, I, I missed that detail. And I, I literally just read the first two chapters again, about uh, 90 minutes before we started recording. Uh, but yeah, good, good. eye. Uh, that is, that is interesting. I, I would have to, I would have to imagine there's some significance to it in that, you know, it, it reinserts, it reinserts O'Hare and notionally Vonnegut, although it might not be actual Vonnegut, uh, back into back into a story in which they otherwise would not exist. Am I the only one who read the whole book? Am I the, am I the godlike figure from the future? <laughs> it seems like it. Oh, excellent. All right, I'm just going to shut up. Putting Mike on mute. All pages <laughs> in this book exist at the same time for you. <laughs> can, I, can I say, I... I do not think that these are, are human characters. I feel like um, Weary is fascinating. Um, and I, I should have done my research. Like, when is Slaughterhouse-Five written? It was published in 69. I don't know if it was... I mean, it, it seems like, if we can take the first chapter at face value, uh, it was written for decades prior to that, uh, realistically, probably a couple of years before 1969. Okay, and when did Tom Clancy write all of his books? Because Roland Weary is like a, a brutal, brutal parody of every word Tom Clancy <laughs> ever wrote. Right? Uh, Tom, Tom Clancy's big book was the uh, was the self published The Hunt for Red October. Actually, no, not self published. Published by the same firm that does Jane's Military Review. They they put a novel out called The Hunt for Red October in nineteen eighty something eighty seven I want to say eighty four I have it up on Wikipedia ah thank so, you yeah so Vonnegut's, the publisher uh, was unstuck in time yeah yeah or, or Vonnegut's parody <laughs> was unstuck in time so the interesting thing about uh, the scouts who um, they don't have a lot of traits but they seem to be like competent right like they are that's the role for Sinatra and for um, John Wayne or those two infantry scouts right they're the people who are actually good at being soldiers and then Weary like imagines that he has this fellowship with them because he is draping himself with military memorabilia and the technology of war and he has this fantasy about how this makes him like a you know a good soldier who has this um, profound brotherhood with the others who served and in fact he's just you know um an, an ugly american of, of the worst sort um which at that point once you have that kind of satirical thing set up or at least this is um 
my mind. He's like, he is established as a symbol for the idea of military adventurism in the mind of someone who is not actually a soldier. Then all of his repellent personal characteristics, which there is a characterization there, but I sort of feel the narrator painting that on as a way to speak to us didactically and say, like, this is not a good thing to do, a good thing to be, because if you are obsessed with war and obsessed with the technology of war and obsessed with cruelty and torture and ways that people can get killed, and if you envision yourself as a good soldier, you know, reporting heroically to the generals after you save this guy from himself, then you are a bully who smells like bacon no matter how much you wash, you know? Um, so, like, there, there is a psychology there, but I'm aware of the writer kind of, like, crafting that psychology to make a didactic point. And again, it feels like I don't really feel like they're actual human beings involved somehow. But I don't know. Maybe, that, maybe that's my cynicism getting the better of me. Well, I mean, that's, that's fair. That's entirely reasonable. Uh, I, have, I have two points, I guess. One in response to that, and one is a sort of commentary on the on the characters and, and Vonnegut's writing style the first the first being uh I mean yes it is it is tempting to say that you know this is a bad character and bad things happen to him and therefore that's the the author's judgment on him in the form of the novel uh it is also worth noting that bad things happen to the the protagonist as well who is if not good at least morally neutral at this stage in the novel. He's done nothing more than, you know, a, a rather, he's done nothing more than a rather pathetic attempt at adultery. And technically he hasn't even done that yet. That's still in the future, which he just saw, but whatever, uh, this is getting weird. So I, I, I guess maybe the, the arching meta point here is that uh, it doesn't matter if you're a, it doesn't matter if you are really enthusiastic about war or are so unenthusiastic about it that you want to be left behind to die of frostbite in the snow, you're going to get captured by the Germans anyway. Now, we don't know what happens to the scouts because they wander off camera. I mean, maybe a couple chapters from now we'll find out that they got captured as well. I don't know because I literally stopped reading at the end of chapter two so as to, to keep my knowledge pristine, to remain stuck in time. Uh, <laughs> But there is a there is a larger point about this, which is uh, which stems from one of the more compelling pieces of writing advice that I ever read. And I, I don't I try not to collect a lot of writing advice, but there's one thing that Kurt Vonnegut wrote that I found particularly useful, which is you should always have your characters want something, even if it's just a glass of water. Uh, was the way he described it, and it it's it's because of that that I think. Uh, that I think three of the characters in this scene are compelling because the scouts clearly want to keep moving. Weary clearly wants wartime glory of some sort, or at the very least friends. Billy Pilgrim is the only one who defies this, this description, this writerly advice that Vonnegut would have given, because he doesn't seem to want anything other than, I mean, really to be, to be left behind to die, which is not really wanting so much as the absence of having a compelling choice. Um, I was going to say, but my mic was muted, as I said before, I was muting my mic. But yeah, I I had forgotten that Vonnegut said that very famous quote. And that's so funny, because this book is, you know, uh, around this character, who is just like this black hole of not a character who doesn't really want anything. That's like his thing. There's a line in chapter two, it's like, oh, Billy doesn't really get mad at anything. Like, he doesn't really care um and it's just um i heard him described i forget where as sort of like the peter sellers character and being there like the whole everything moves the, the whole plot moves around him but he doesn't really do much <laughs> of anything he just sort of like walks forward um although billy pilgrim doesn't really walk forward he sort of walks in weird circles through time but still i think that's so funny that vonica was the one who said that with the water or like, uh, or like Elliot Gould's character in the Robert Altman adaptation of The Long Goodbye, who doesn't really, uh, I just had to check, which came out four years after this, uh, uh, who doesn't really solve a murder so much as wander from scene to scene and occasionally get 
kidnapped by cops or mobsters or whatever, and then hired to do something which he sort of fails to do. Uh, and then at the end realizes what's what's gone on, but doesn't really do any detective work per se. So that's that's sort of, I guess that's a bit of a postmodern fingerprint. Is that the it's it's less of a it's less of a heroic role, less of a person who does things, and more of a person who wanders from scene to scene and witnesses and offers some sort of arch commentary at best, but doesn't you know, doesn't have or doesn't need agency. They're also they're also both reactions against a more kind of valorized sort of hero uh, from crime fiction in one case and from, you know, from war fiction in, uh, you know, in in another case. And I mean, I think this point is underlined when in the first chapter, the narrator uh, is reading about the is reading about the Crusades. Um, and even in the even in the sort of antique writing about the Crusades, it's like the Crusades were bloody and kind of pointless and and uh, the the net result of the crusades was a bunch of what was it cantankerous knights or something there was there was a great there was a great uh bit of diction um irascible knights or like uh meddlesome or or you know i don't know something like that knights uh held palestine for a hundred years or so um but in the romance you uh you sort of dilate on the the faith and the you know uh singularity of purpose and the heroism and and uh you know all of these all of these kinds of things and and there seems to be i mean there seems to be not just a not just a uh, an art historical point to to these characters who are floating through time, but a uh, right, but a political point as well. Uh, that the the sort of straight ahead, um, you know, hard charging protagonist is too uh, too triumphal, right? Too unquestioningly uh, or unquestionably heroic. Um, to really comport with the sense of the sense of dislocation, the sense of dread. Uh, you know the sense of of old old forms being inadequate to 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 lived experience that follows a big um, a big dislocation like the second a big sort of cultural and personal trauma like the Second World War. I mean the same thing happened in the twenties with literary modernism after the First World War. Though the manifestations were were a little bit different, right? These these fragments I've shorn against my ruin and 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 whatnot. Um, there's a sense of sort of experience being blown apart or, or the continuity of, uh, you know, um, of narrative being, being blown apart. With that, with, with that, there's, there's a bit where Vonnegut, I think kind of not tips his hand, but definitely got underlines the point of the book where he's talking about how the, the nicest and friendliest veterans in Schenectady, New York are the ones who fought the most and the ones who are the most anti-war. And so it's this idea that, like, basically anybody who actually saw really bad stuff in war is anti-war. And I think that kind of ties neatly into um, what, Jordan, you were talking about with the the gear and the obsession with military hardware. Because there is kind of a, even in the modern military, there's definitely a, a kind of fine line between... There are, you know, the the Navy SEALs, they all have really, really good gear because, of course, they have to because they're doing really, really difficult missions. But then you also have some guys that really kind of want to be Navy SEALs but aren't. And they also buy really, really expensive gear and like to show it off because that's about the closest they can get to being an elite unit. And so there's this really fine line between where, where that is. And there's a, you know, a couple, I'm trying to remember them, but there's definitely pejorative terms for guys that are perceived as having the gear but not having the job to to justify needing all of that fancy stuff it's like a uh, billy pilgrim's mom uh, that famous line where uh, vonnegut says that like many americans she was trying to construct a life that made sense from things she found in a gift shop like um this idea that not only the people <laughs> in a war um you know their meaning has been blown up but that you know, American life in general, um, maybe it wasn't even blown up. Maybe America for a very long time hadn't had any meaning. 
um, and that all people have left is a bunch of junk that they gather around themselves and say, like, this is who I am. Like, weary, not only ha- um, having all this military paraphernalia, but also, like, um, having all this uh, these clothes wrapped around him so he can pretend like he's at home. Like, um, or what else was I thinking of? Oh, or um, Billy um, has all this stuff on top of him, too, so he looks like a flamingo. So to other people, he seems like this comic figure so they could be like, oh, this is that character. But Billy isn't that character. He's just like this nothing. Um, but he has all this junk around him, so he seems like a real person. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> well, but that's, that's really interesting then, because if, if not only human agency is untenable at this point, but also the meaning of things is untenable, right? Um, I, I come back again to Dresden, and if stuff doesn't matter, then why do we care about the artistic treasures that were destroyed there? I don't I guess Vonnegut hasn't really hit that that nail so far. Like he talks about bone meal a little bit. Um oh no, but he does talk about the um what is it? The the picture gallery and the the Kreuzkirche. Um, and he has the, the in, in my edition at least, the untranslated quote from Goethe um, about how when Goethe was writing, that existed at least as a ruin. And um, pointing at the ruined church, someone says, uh, you know, this is the devil's work. Um, but if stuff doesn't matter, then is it the devil's work, right? Like, was, was the... Uh, the, that gothic cathedral or whatever style it happened to be, no more than a way that uh, the the Dresdenites tried to cobble together meaning from, you know, stuff that they dug out of a quarry somewhere. Right. Or the picture of the woman trying to screw a horse, you know, in the background there were like these Doric columns and they were trying to justify it as art because it's like, oh, it's from a historical time, you know, it's all mythological, it's high art. But you know, really, it's just a bunch of uh, junk put behind her um, to justify like, like this humorous pornographic scene. Um, so there's this idea that um, history itself is a bunch of junk um, that we just use to justify whatever we want to do in the present, like the Crusades, I suppose, as well. And by the way, you know, the art of antiquity was not free of smut. Right, was not like all very high minded, right? Catullus oh, smut, Tacitus oh, yeah. smut, Suetonius smut, you know, juvenile smut, uh, smut, smut, smut. <laughs> I, I, uh, I googled because I was curious, um, like whether that was an actual early photograph because it seems like an interesting story. And like the, the Yahoo answer or whatever was like, no, this is not true. This person doesn't exist. The funny thing about it is that, like, had it existed, the woman would have needed to pose with the horse for 20 minutes for the ticket. <laughs> <laughs> well, she was stuck in time for that long. That, yeah, that's sure, true. sure. <laughs> Try getting a horse to stand still for that long. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Seriously. You don't see a lot of Sorry to uh, to speaking of of photography and and vision and through a, and through a glass darkly. What do we think is the significance of the fact that Ilium, New York, uh, is primarily a you know its its industry is really lens manufacture that that's that's the trade Billy goes into after he gets out of the war you know becoming an optometrist and. You know, getting in on the manufacturing of lenses and frame and glasses and the particularly telling line. The real money's in frames, of course, when it comes to making glasses. Uh, what do we uh, – is there some significance there and what do we think it is? It, uh, it is even, even today, right? If you buy your glasses off the internet the, uh, the way I buy them, you see you can get perfectly good glasses for 20 bucks. Um, but I thought that the I thought that the industry was in frames because it was a sort of ancillary industry to its being a mill town or something like that. And the reason everyone had to wear glasses is because they everyone all like eighty thousand or however many employees needed safety goggles, right? Because they were involved in in some sort of industrial 
industrial activity. So the the uh, the trade in the trade in lenses and glasses and safety goggles is is sort of ancillary to the you know great American. Um, Right, like economic uh, powerhouse of the factory. Another way that you could look at it is that um, it is his job to help people see clearly, and that when he has his vision and starts to write his, uh, you know, his testament, he is thinking that he is going to get people to understand death more clearly. So again, all these sort of a making people see. Testament? Are you saying there's Jesus imagery? <laughs> Because there is. <laughs> there is, guys. Um, actually, if we're like going to do close readings of very specific lines or symbols in here, what do you guys think of, and especially since we're talking about smut as well, um, when Weary's talking about the, the worst torture ever is being buried in uh, sand, and then you have your, your penis sticking up with some honey on it, and there are ants coming in, and your eyelids are taken off, so you have to stare at the sun all the time. Like, what, what an image that is. Uh, do, do you think there's something more to it other than it's sort of like a mix between horrifying and a little hilarious? Or maybe I'm a weirdo who finds it hilarious. I don't know if that's the normal response. but Well, it's, it's definitely hilarious given that, you know, these two guys are in the middle of, I think it's Luxembourg during, you know, what we now know as the Battle of the Bulge, tra- tramping through snow without any without any food to eat, in freezing temperatures, being hunted by Germans, and you have this this nutcase inventing ways to be tortured. Like, oh, what do you think the most painful way to die is? This, this guy who is very likely going to die of frostbite unless someone hurries up and puts him in a prison camp. Uh, it's, it, it's a, you know, if nothing else, a hilarious commentary on our need to invent you know, invent ways of, of hurting and, and torturing and enslaving each other, even when the, in the midst of being hurt, pursued, and about to be enslaved. Well, I think it also says something profound that no one who's ever played that game, what is the worst death? Um, well, actually, I was about to say something, but then I realized that I've always done it this way. Whenever I have that conversation, and I've had it like a dozen times that I can, I can think of, I'm always picturing myself dying that way. That is not Roland's experience, right? He's saying, you take a guy and you do this to the guy. So he's picturing himself as the torturer, right? Um, which, you know, that's also revealing. I would say yes. that it's kind of hilarious, uh, Shana, as long as, again, with humor, you need to be outside of the anthill for the, for the joke to really <laughs> land. Well, I feel better about myself now, uh, Jordan, so thank you for that, because you are, you know, a, a normal, uh, well-adjusted person. So now I can sort of bask in that normality for a second. Thank well, you, you know, they, what they say, comedy is a tragedy unstuck in time, right? Wah, wah, that's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Sorry. No, Brooke says, uh, the tragedy is when I stub my toe. Comedy is when you fall in a manhole and die. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, but you can't, uh, right? We were talking about joke telling earlier. You can't be like, oh, he slipped on a banana. That's so regrettable. I really feel feel for that guy who slips on that pin. That would be hilarious. <laughs> you should take that on stage. <laughs> um, can we talk a little bit? I feel like we've sort of stinted the first chapter uh, a little bit. Um, and and I was just wondering what you folks thought of it. Uh, what you folks thought of it. Like, here's one one thing I thought. Like, I thought that one of the things I was tracing as it developed through that chapter was stuff about... Uh, was stuff about communication, right? About the phone calls, about the messages, the the mimeographed newspaper articles uh, going through pneumatic tubes under the streets of Chicago, and uh, and then this sort of um, this kind of relentless pursuit of writing the book and the kind of churn uh, and constant activity of that without any of the satisfaction of actually finishing it, of actually like completing the communication or at least sending the message. Uh, sending the message in the tube. I mean, it struck me that the talking on phones was kind of like the writer casting out for readers, right? Like asking the operator, hey, do you know so-and-so uh, from such-and-such a town? Can you can you hook me up with them? Like sort of wondering, uh, wondering who's going to be there 
uh, on who's going to be there on the other end. I don't know. That that was one thing I, I was tracing. Was there anything else in that? In Wait, that? can I talk about that more? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, because first of all, I thought it was interesting because apparently Kurt Vonnegut invented the drunk dial, right? That was the first time I've ever <laughs> heard of that, like outside of recent history. Um, but also, I wonder if he's looking for readers or he was looking for sort of co-writers as well because he uh, eventually called his friend O'Hare uh, to get uh, you know tidbits that he would put in his book, but also he said he would call old exes. And what, what do you call exes about? I guess like to either remember something um, from your past, your shared past, or maybe to get more information about why it didn't work out. Like he um, says in the first chapter that he wanted to write this book, but his uh, memory, as we said before, is very fragmented. So he needs other people to put their fragments in as well. Um, Of course, that doesn't really work out either because O'Hare doesn't remember much and also he doesn't seem to want to talk about it. Um, And every time Vonnegut gets really excited about his book, O'Hare says, um... Um, so it just, um, I guess it was interesting to me as someone in this 21st century where I, I have a terrible memory that's just been getting worse and worse as the years go on. Um, like, I feel like I need to have other people around me to have memories. Um, like my brain is disjointed because there are some things that like, I don't know, but I can ask my sister, I'll drunk dial her in the middle of the night and be like, Hey, Ariel, what happened on this, this, this date? You know, so maybe that was the, I don't know. Uh, well, we've got, we've got Facebook like that. for that now. Oh yeah, that too. Yeah, well, I, yeah, as a sort of replacement memory and also as a way to cyber stalk your exes uh, right. when you're drunk late at night. <laughs> Without the bothering thing, them. The other thing that's weird about the drunk dial versus the sober dial to the ex is that, like, if I, if I were to call up someone from my past, like, while I'm in my right mind, I'll open that call with, hey, that you're surprised to hear from me, right? Like, what you've been up to? I know this is kind of strange. Anyway, I wanted to talk about this thing and get some closure on this issue, whatever. But, like, the the drunk dial is a very unstuck-in-time kind of thing, because generally you just, like, you hit the ground running. Um, and it's it's like you've almost forgotten for a minute that you did break up, Right. Um, and it's like it's still appropriate for you to call this person at this hour um, and, and like, you know, rouse them from their sleep the way that, like, you know, you have sort of that privilege when you're dating somebody. Um, and I think there's a touch of it there, too, right, that, like, it is alcohol that unsticks in uh, in time to a degree. But I think there's something interesting about the the technology that we're we're talking about here between the difference between the phone and, and the pneumatic tubes because the phone is a way of establishing a, a connection with somebody in real time where you're talking back and forth, whereas the tubes you just kind of package up the message, stick it off in a tube, and away it goes like off into the ether, and hopefully it gets where it's supposed to go. Um, you know, you can't drunk pneumatic tube someone most likely more, more likely than not. Like that's, you just haven't tried just, hard enough. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. There was a point in my life where a lot of my pneumatic tubing was done under the influence, but the, the, but then there's a third, there's a third thing, which is like getting together face to face across the kitchen table with his friend in like the operating room. Right. Uh, with one glass for booze because his friend doesn't drink since the war and like and face to face. Right. So we're talking about sort of successive layers of mediation, like the like the sort of successive layers of psychological protection from trauma or the successive layers of kind of narrative bracketing. Right. And even even then, even when he actually gets together in the room, like actually gets in a room with O'Hare, he doesn't he doesn't get the human connection that he anticipated. He thought, oh, okay, it's going to be a cozy living room with, you know, plush overstuffed leather or straight back leather chair or sorry, a cozy living room with two leather chairs near a fire in a paneled room where two old soldiers could drink and talk. So this is what he's envisioned. And, you know, it's going to be cozy and O'Hare is going to tell me some stuff and it'll be great. But first, a lot of what 
a lot of what he describes is O'Hare, you know, he poses something to O'Hare and O'Hare says, eh, I don't know, or like, hey, you're the writer, you tell me. And second, O'Hare's wife continues to bustle about the kitchen and, and make a lot of noise until she finally has that explosive confrontation with him that we've we've already discussed in the podcast. So in in all three cases, you know, the, the drunken phone calls, the pneumatic tubes being sent uh, being sent into the the ether and the actual face-to-face vonnegut or rather the character vonnegut in chapter one is seeking this human connection seeking to restore his his touch with humanity that he's sort of lost in contemplating dresden has never really regained and each time he is frustrated in some way each time that is that is denied to him I'm thinking also um, another weird communication that reminds me of that scene, John, um, was when he was talking about uh, the idiotic Englishman uh, back uh, at the end of the war after the firebombing um, who has this bag with a secret inside and he keeps telling everyone that it's secret and he's not going to show anyone, um, which is sort of uh, defeating the purpose of having a secret. And then finally he opens it uh, for Vonnegut to show him that there's a clock inside. Oh, a clock symbolism. Um, But that's like this other thing, like you have this story inside um, about war that you don't want to tell anyone um, but you really, really want to tell people. Um, so I think that is sort of what Vonnegut is getting at, um, that he wants to talk about the war, but he doesn't. Um, he wants to have an emotional connection to the people that he was with in the war, but he can't. Um, yeah, so I agree with you is what I was saying. Uh, yeah, I was Yay! Just, uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was... Uh, it- yeah, it occurred to me, like, I was wondering, and I don't know to what extent this, this works, because I haven't read the whole thing yet, um, but if that first chapter was almost kind of an inoculation uh, for the reader against what's to come, like, because he's talking he's talking about the book to a lot of people before he's written it, um, and their their reactions can kind of anticipate the you know the the reaction of the reader once it's actually written it's like oh you're going to write this this war book and it's going to be pro war it's going to make it seem all glamorous and then he's talking about uh talking to the um a university professor about uh about the 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 raid and 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 the book that he's writing and the professor seems to be worried that it's going to uh come off as pro german because it's like, oh, this terrible thing happened, but, you know, and 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 the narrator and Vonnegut is seems to be at pains to be like, well, I'm not. I, I realize he says, I know, I know, I know. It's not that you know he he knows that these problems are going to come out from writing this book because they're inevitable, and um, and I was you know I I wonder if if that is kind of uh, trying to take on his critics before they have a chance, to, you know, that he's not unaware of these issues. And that's just, you know, stuff that has to be part of the subtext, even if it's not part of the novel itself. I think that's, I think that's very true. And there's also some fairly clever, um, novelistic foreshadowing, right? Where it's like, oh, it's all going to hinge on the the guy who gets shot for stealing the thing. You remember that guy, right? So to the degree that I'm like hooked by this book, I am looking forward to meeting some of these characters and watching some of these events that he teases for you in the first chapter. So I do think that there's a certain amount of like stage managing the the reader's reactions and responses um, and feelings about the text. That are that are sort of done there, and that's that's a great transition here. I want to highlight uh, a post on the Overthinking at Forum where we do continuing the the book club discussion here from user Hollow Oak, who's working on a great project here, cataloging all of the instances of So It Goes, and so far he's just done chapter one and chapter two. And he notes that in chapter one, Edgar Darby, who was shot for stealing a teapot teapot is not given a so it goes and so even in that subtle way we're primed that that is different that the the death of edgar darby is or derby is going to be different from the deaths 
the the twenty the eighteen other deaths we see in chapters one and two. That's uh, interesting. Yeah, so uh, post in the forum, even though it will be meaningless because all communication is sort of impossible and uh, life is a meaningless nothing that leads to death inevitably. I think and so f- it goes. Yeah, forum is a good uh, <laughs> is a good metaphor for that because of the fragmentation, you know. No, but seriously, we like when people uh, post in the forum. It makes it makes me happy. I smile. It makes us feel less alone. <laughs> I don't think that's possible. It's like the operating room. <laughs> just, 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 uh, it's so dark. <laughs> tracking, tracking back for a second to this uh, this question of getting to the human connection across the table. Um, I was just kind of flipping back through chapter one, and right after that, they go back into mediation. Right, so they they sit down, they drink their whiskey, they don't really connect. Um, and then uh, his friend's wife snaps at him, and then they dig out the encyclopedia and read about the Children's Crusade. And then he talks about the books on his bedside table, and he talks about the books he's reading on the plane, and so on. So it's kind of like an, an envelope, that, uh, that, first, uh, that first chapter. You have like media, 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 this one real emotion, which... <laughs> Probably I shouldn't even go here, but he sort of like brings in a woman to have the emotional response and then trundles her off and then mediation, 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 and then into the actual uh, novel itself. Oh, I think that's interesting um, that, that the woman is the one with the emotion because that's that's true in chapter two also with the uh, Billy Pilgrim's daughter, um, you know, just getting very frustrated uh, with him. And of course, the narrator has to go and call her a bitch, but whatever, that's fine. Um, but the, yeah, the, I, I not like, just a bitch, but a bitchy flipperty gibbet. Oh, yes. Which is way worse. (laughs) But this, I mean, this actually is probably a good topic, a good topic for the forums, because I feel like we could, we could do another hour on, on the women, the women in the novel. So maybe, maybe let's leave it as an exercise to the reader uh, and for us also, because we'll be in the forums mixing it up. uh, Because, because our readers are presumably not stuck in time and presumably, you know, want to uh, wrap up this podcast at some point. So, uh, so thanks. This has been a great week, uh, a great podcast for the first week of this uh, return of the Overthinking It podcast, uh, book club. Uh, before we wrap, one final thing. It's never too late to start looking to the future. For now, we're just kind of teasing it, but stay tuned to Overthinking It, uh, the book club. We're going to go to some exciting places this year. Uh, this has been great. Join us over in the forums. Uh, let us know what you think. Uh, we'll keep watching them and bring that out in future podcasts. Uh, So until then, just join us at www.overthinkingit.com, the place where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably doesn't deserve. I told you it was going to end with deserve.